So Father, we thank you for the work that you do inside and outside these walls. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. 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 And let's continue to pray. Uh, We're going to be taking time to pray now every week for uh, that Sunday. All right, so... uh, Part 19, chapter 9, see the way that last week it was 18, chapter 8, 19, chapter 9. That joke was wasted on you last week, and it seems to be the same this week, but that's okay, because I'm good with that. Now, we as a church, we celebrate baptism, okay? And if you looked at your email, which many of you don't, because we're creeping on you, and we can tell, uh, we're having a baptism here on, on October 16th, and so if it's something you're interested in, let us know and take a class, and then uh, we'll, we'll baptize. But we celebrate baptism. At one time, we used to go to people's pools, swimming pools, and uh, some of the friends and family of those being baptized would be there, and, and we would do the baptism in the pool. And, and a few years ago, we purchased a baptismal which probably can be argued that's a glorified hot tub for the pastor. But anyway, it works, and it works well. Uh, there's no bubbles, but it is warm. And um, so now we baptize right in front of the cross, in front of the entire community to, to witness this, this thing that, that takes place in people. People have made a decision that, that God is doing something deep within them, and now they want to express that publicly before the church. And so we baptize. Now, the act of baptizing is something that's very sacred. It's very holy. The church has been practicing it for thousands of years. In fact, Jesus' disciples were told, go make more disciples and and baptize. But baptism in and of itself is not the magic pill. Baptism is not the way that we get into God's good graces. Baptism is not how we get saved. Salvation comes by God's grace through faith, period. But yet, baptism is us being obedient to the word of God. Now, we as a church, we baptize by immersion, which is kind of the the model that we see in the scripture. Now that means that we dunk people underwater. But if I'm baptizing someone and I happen to hold them underwater till they turn blue, it's not me baptizing. They don't get an extra dose of baptism if we just put them down and bring them right back up quick again. It's not like they've been more baptized because they almost drowned. Though it'd be kind of, never mind. Um, And if somebody came to me in a wheelchair that couldn't get into our baptismal or couldn't get into a pool, I would sprinkle or splash or pour to baptize them. Because baptism is a symbol and it points to something much deeper than just the act of going underwater and coming out of the water. There's something going on in these people's lives that's deep within them 
And they want to profess that before the community. And yes, it is a ritual that's filled with tradition and sacredness and holiness, but it's, it's not the thing. It points to the thing. It points to something deeper than itself. And it's important that we do take, take part in it because the scripture encourages us to be baptized, but it's not it. Like people who are baptized haven't arrived my philosophy is, as soon as you receive Jesus, you should be baptized. Because then the journey begins. God is always using these symbols to point us to something deeper than what is symbolic. Baptism is just one of them. It's the inward, it's the it's the outward expression of this inward reality that's taking place in the heart and soul of people. And it's, it's this journey that people are on following Jesus. And there is a lot of depth in following Jesus. In fact, we're never gonna get to the end of the depth of the journey that we're on with Jesus. There's always gonna be more and more and more. And I, I believe that's the beauty of it. But baptism is that, that thing that points to something that's taking place within us, deep within our soul, deep within our heart. Now, in chapter 9 of Hebrews, what we're going to look at today, the first 14 verses, he is unpacking something that is symbolic to the people. And he's going to unpack for us this idea of, of tabernacle, the earthly one the, one, the one that's here on earth. And what he wants us to understand is God has established this as a picture, as something that's going to point us much uh, beyond itself into something that's much deeper than just Altars and tents and golden lampstands. God wants us to understand what's underneath the symbol because in the symbol itself, it points to him. And as the writer begins to kind of flesh this all out for us, we're gonna be able to see some of the pitfalls that we encounter as Jesus followers in this idea of symbolism or tabernacle. And so let's start in the first five verses of Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenants. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. So what the writer of Hebrews is pointing to, he's pointing back into the Old Testament, uh, to the tabernacle, and he begins to describe these things to his Jewish audience. When he gets to chapter, or verse 5, he says, you know, there, there's a lot to talk about there, but we can't get into it right now. And, and kind of in part, it's because they know this stuff. They know about the altar and the Ark of the Covenant and the golden lampstand. They, they understand all that because it's part of their tradition. But I thought it would be good for us to kind of just spend some time and, and, and briefly unpack those elements because they, those things are pointing to something deeper than themselves. They're pointing beyond themselves. They, they're pointing to Jesus. So now the tabernacle is a tent uh, before the temple as, as um, 
Israel was in the desert, and they would set this tent up in the center, and all of the tribes would kind of gather around, and they would camp around it. So it was the center of the community. It was made of canvas and linen and all kinds of other things. And as a person, you could walk into the door, and you would be in the courtyard. And in the courtyard, you would find the altar of burnt offering. It was made of bronze, and usually this is where they would tie the animals that were going to be sacrificed. Now, as a layperson, because only the priest could enter into the holy place and the holy of holies, as a layperson, this is as far as you can go. This is where you would come, you would bring your sacrifice, you would speak to the priests and figure out what was your next steps. Now, the rest of the tabernacle, as they go in, the holy place and the most holy place, that ran about, so somewhere around 45 feet. It was about 15 feet wide. It's about 15 feet high. It had beautiful linens that would cover the roof, and that was covered with, with animal skins and animal hides. And in verse 2, it says, The tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. The table with consecrated bread had 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This points to Jesus. Jesus said what? I am the bread of life. Jesus is pointing back and he's fulfilling what this earthly tabernacle was symbolic in pointing to, something much deeper. And then we have the golden lampstand that the priest always attended. It always had to stay lit. And now the ancient rabbis believe that this represented a residual spark of the light at creation. When, when God said, let there be light. And so this lampstand was symbolic of light shining out into all the world. In fact, when this lampstand got into the temple, the windows were built in such a way that inside the wall was smaller. And the window got bigger as it went through the wall to magnify this light out into the world. Jesus would come and say, I am the light of the world. And so these things are just pointing to something deeper. They're symbolic, they're sacred, they're holy, but they're not the thing. They're pointing to something much bigger, much more holy, and much more sacred. Then you moved into the Holy of Holies. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and a gold covered ark, the gold covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded in the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover or the mercy seat. Now, on the day of atonement, one day a year, was the only time the high priest could enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And he never went in without blood. He always had blood of the sacrifice. And he would walk in and he was going to make atonement for all of the sin of Israel. And he would go in and he would splash that blood on the cover of the mercy seat. Again, this is pointing to Jesus and him, his blood, washing us once and for all free of our sin. And then the things that were in the, or in the Ark of the Covenant. Manna, the bread that came from heaven. Again, Jesus, I am the bread of life. 
Aaron's staff that budded, pointing to Aaron was the high priest, Moses' brother. His staff, which was dead, it came to life and it budded. And now that's in the, the Ark of the Covenant, it's pointing to Jesus as our once and for all high priest. And then the, the stone tablets of the law. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. All of this pointing beyond itself, all of these things made of gold, sacred and holy things that were respected, pointing to something much deeper, pointing to Jesus himself. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that was only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are, only a matter, they are only a matter of food and drink in various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. All right, so the tabernacle was a busy place. 24-7, it was an operation. The priests coming and going, people coming and going. There was sacrifices always being made, blood squirting everywhere. I, I mean, this was a very busy, busy place. The people were always coming in because they were always combating this, this weight of guilt for their sin. And they always had to keep coming back and always had to, to offer sacrifices to help quiet this thing that was in them, this, this voice that was speaking to them. They wanted to, they needed help to deal with maybe a distance that they felt from God. Sacrifices were being made on behalf of the people. And then on that one day, the Day of Atonement, when only the high priest can enter the most holy place, sacrifice was made for the entire nation. He would offer the sacrifice for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. That's a very important statement that we have to deal with. What the text is telling us is the only sins that were being paid for were sins of ignorance. See, under the old system, under the old covenant, under the law, under the old tabernacle, the only sin that was forgivable was when you made a mistake and didn't know it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, I believe, God, please forgive me for the sins I don't even know I'm committing. Sins of ignorance. The sin you didn't know you were committing. Maybe you didn't prepare your food correctly. Maybe you didn't prepare your wine correctly. Maybe you didn't wash correctly. But the, the system did not cleanse you of premeditated sin. Okay, that means that when you know what God wants you to do and you go, you know what, I ain't doing it, and you do something against him, that is a premeditated sin. And in the old covenants, there was no way to be forgiven of that. Look what it says in, in Numbers chapter 15. But anyone who sins defiantly, and these were, and, and in some translations, it's called the high-handed sin. 
But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Woo! Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. The premeditated sinner, and I'm glad nobody here has ever premeditated in their sin, the premeditated sinner was in real trouble because he would never be able to, she would never be able to shake the guilt from their conscience. And no one wants to be cut off from the community. And that meant, for sure, that meant death. When you get kicked outside the community, you were on your own, you had a very good chance of dying because you did not have the support of the community. And so many times, these premeditated sin, if they didn't get caught, they would just keep it to themselves. And that's why the guilt and the anxiety and, and, the, and the, uh, the worry would just build and build and build, and their conscience would be heavy. David writes about it in Psalm 51 after his affair with Bathsheba. It's for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and then what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. David knows that there is going to be nothing that he could do, nothing that he could sacrifice that is going to wash this guilt from him, that is going to take care of his sin. But later in verse 17, he writes this, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Even in the Old Testament, they know, they knew that it's, it's all about God's grace. It was always about his grace. It's always about what goes on on the inside of us. It's always about where our heart is. It's always about the inner person. See, the only sin that could be forgiven in the old covenant were sins of ignorance. So no one could ever really have a clear conscience because the Holy Spirit has a, as had yet to come and begin to transform the inner person. So what keeps going on is the people keep trying to clear their conscience. They keep trying to break free from that, from that thing, you know, that, that voice in your head that says, mm-mm, you ain't getting away with it this time. And so they would bring gifts and sacrifices, but they could not do anything to heal them. They could, those gifts, those sacrifices did not make them whole, did not free them. It was all about the external stuff. Remember we said a few weeks ago that the law makes nothing perfect. The law cannot fix what's on the inside, and that's what God is really focused on, the inside. The old covenant never dealt with the inner person. The offerings and sacrifices did nothing to heal the conscience. And so I can imagine these people coming in and bringing the goat or the bull or the birds or making the, the, uh, the grain offerings and leaving as heavy as when they walked in. See, see the gifts and the sacrifices, they were a symbol of something beyond itself something that was, that was much deeper. But what happened was people started to just focus on the gifts 
and the, and the, and the, uh, the sacrifices. That became the most important thing. It really doesn't matter what I do as long as I do these religious things. As long as I bring a few birds, some grain, maybe this month I gotta do a cow because I really messed up. And that became the rotes. That became the tradition. They focused on the sacrifices and made that the most important thing. And God is going, you're, you're missing the point. Look at what he says in Amos. I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Just so you know, if God ever says this about things you're doing, not cool. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring your choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Isaiah kind of, kind of uh, speaks about the same thing when, when God says through the prophet, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. See, what God is saying is, you're missing the point. It's not about the festival. It's not about you bringing these animals to be sacrificed. It's not about you doing these things because that's what you think you should be doing. These are the rules that you, you should be following. You're going through the motions and you're missing what's, what lies behind these things. Why the festival is there because it's all pointing to God and that's what God wants. And they made these things the most important. You're going through them, you're singing this, so I don't even care about your songs because your heart is not in it. You've made the symbol the thing, and you're missing what goes much deeper. And he goes, you know, I, I, I don't care. You can do all the religious stuff you want, and, and I just don't want to hear it. What I want is your heart. I want you to understand that all of these things I've given you in the earthly realm, God says, point to me. And the people are missing the points. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So here in these verses we find we see, we hear the truth that will really begin to set us free. Now what we've unpacked so far is that the old covenant, the old tabernacle, the old way of doing things, it, it, it's, it's, it cannot free us from the weight of the guilt that we carry in our, in, our, in our humanness. It was an old system that is now outdated. See, the people, they knew what was right. They knew the law. And they willfully did wrong because we're human. We all willfully do wrong. 
And they would go back to the tabernacle trying to make amends, and they would leave as heavy as when they went in. And so they had to keep coming back over and over and over again. And in verse 14, what it's saying is that the old system is just dead works. It's dead works. People had this desire to please God. They had a desire to be close to him. They would go to the tabernacle and they would get all busy in the religious festivities trying to earn their way back into God's good graces, busy with all of the, the trappings and trimmings of, of church and worship and sacrifice and gifts. And they had this weight on their heart that never went away. The blood of animals could not get it done. But now we have the once and for all spotless lamb of God who gave his life, spilled his blood. And we now can know what it means to live guiltless. We can now begin to understand what freedom is. The blood of Christ has now has brought light to that place that once was dark. Now maybe you're thinking, well, how do we get to know the freedom, the, the cleansing of the heart and soul? You know, as I live, and I'm sure maybe as you live, uh, we live and we fail and we fall and, and we mess up and we get up and we mess up all over again. And, and again, there's that voice that's in our head, right? You know, the, the, one that's, the one that always wants to point out the things that you've done wrong. The one that says, mm, really, dude, again? Good job. Oh, and it's the day after and you haven't even prayed yet about it? Nicely done. Oh, and you haven't read your Bible in a while, too. Let me just sprinkle that in there. What's the matter with you? Why can't you get a hold of this? How can you let them happen? And the first response that we want is we want to run back to the tabernacle. We want to run back in and try to make amends, try to do better. I'm, I'm going to promise myself I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to be nice to that person. I'm not going to think those thoughts ever again. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I might even have to do the dishes and we run back into this religious activity to try to make amends, to try to clear our conscience, but we can't, and it won't work. That's the old system. The old system was works and effort and trying and striving and sacrifice. And it's never done anything for anyone. So now I want to go back to verse 8. We kind of just glossed right over it. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Here's what the Bible is saying here. You will never know wholeness. You will never know fullness of life. You will never know freedom you will never understand what a clear conscience is if you keep trying to fix yourself. You have nothing to offer Jesus. You have nothing that he wants in exchange for, Jesus, if I just give you some of this, then will you heal me? If I just throw some of this your way and I promise to do this and A and B and C, then will you, then will you finally set me free? There's nothing that Jesus wants. There's nothing of value that we can give him in exchange for our own sin. 
And until we come to the end of ourselves and realize that, that we have nothing to offer him, it is going to be almost impossible for us to receive his grace and his mercy because they're free gifts. The only thing that's gonna clear our conscience is the blood of Christ. You will never be able to do it. You will not do it by trying harder, doing more, taking part in more Bible studies, being at church early and leaving, well, maybe being at church early, but leaving late, you will never clear your conscience on your own. We cannot outdo Jesus. He has done it all for us, and we have nothing more to do than to open ourselves to that truth. And so when you begin to play the game of thinking, man, I got this. I can handle this myself. I think I can clean this up. You're walking back into the old tabernacle, the old covenant, a tent that's been made by human hands. See, here's, here's the reality. Um, there's not a single person that's ever walked through these doors that is all cleaned up and ready to go because they've worked really hard at it. Not a single person. There's not a single person that comes in and goes, <laughs> I've arrived. <laughs> I'm here. I've done it my own. I've finished it. None of us. We all carry this weight of sin and brokenness. And our healing comes by what Jesus has done on the cross and not what we try to do in our own lives. That's the reality. That's the truth. Now, we all carry the weight of guilt. Like, if, if you're a Jesus follower, you should not feel guilty about your past. Jesus has covered it. But I will guarantee there's very few people that can say, nah, I don't carry around any guilt, I'm good. I mean, there might be some. I'm a firm believer of the first step to wholeness and healing is to understand you have been forgiven. Because when you know, when you know that you have been forgiven in the eyes of God, that he no longer sees your sin, that he is separated as far as the east is from the west, that he remembers it no more, that is the first step of our healing. And many times we just, we, 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 we don't understand that we have been forgiven and we get caught up, but until that moment comes of, I'm forgiven. Jesus paid it all, I'm forgiven. Then we can begin to heal. Then we can begin to heal. And many times that healing, in that healing, man, we, we need help. We need help. But it can't start until you're honest, until you're no longer afraid to face yourself. Because that's what unforgiveness of yourself is. You're afraid to face yourself. And so you just kind of put that, I'm not gonna ignore it, I know I'm not forgiven. God can never forgive that, which is a lie from the pit of hell, but I'm just gonna put it aside. But church, we need each other. Some, for, some, for some, you should go to counseling. But I would say don't go until you understand you are forgiven and you don't have to run from yourself. I go see a spiritual director slash counselor once a month and I go in there knowing I'm forgiven and I don't have to run from any of my junk. 
and I could talk with him about it, and sometimes it's a light conversation, and sometimes I'm really aggravated, whatever. But I walk in those doors knowing that the Lord has forgiven me for whatever has happened in my past, even just a second ago. For some, uh, celebrate recovery. There's always ways that we can begin to heal. Healing is a process because we're human. It would be great if it was a light switch. Ooh, click, I'm better. But I will tell you this. Until you fully understand you have been forgiven, you are forgiven, that healing will never take place. Remember I said a few weeks ago that the alcoholic who, who fights not to drink every day, he's not really free. See, Jesus came for freedom, for wholeness. But the first step is you have to understand you are forgiven. Not a little bit, not most of the way, 100%. The cross was enough. The cross was more than enough. And so this morning, as a symbol that points to something that is much deeper, we're going to celebrate communion. And it's not even about the the bread and, and the little juice cups that we have. This is a symbol that points to your forgiveness. This is sacred, holy tradition that we take very serious, but it points to something much deeper. It points to your reality of you being forgiven. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you wrestle with that. Maybe you wrestle with the guilt. Maybe you wrestle with, you just can't forgive yourself. And see, that's gonna keep you, that's gonna keep you trapped in whatever you're trapped in. And so this morning, I'm gonna ask the elders to come up and Dave. And we are going to serve you communion. But just don't run up here and grab the symbols. What I would like you to do is begin to meditate on what they point to. They point to your forgiveness because of the cross. And you know, we have these little These little juice cups, they're cute. We buy them by the thousands. They're plastic. Maybe instead of leaving them in the back of your chair today, you can take this home as a symbol. Put it somewhere until it reminds you that you are forgiven. Not only are you forgiven for the past, You're forgiven for what you're going to mess up with tomorrow, next week, next year. For those who have put their faith in Jesus. Let this symbol point you to something much deeper than just bread and and juice. Let it point you to what Christ did on the cross. What he accomplished in a sanctuary that was not built by human hands. And so as you're ready, you can come up and, and take the elements. And as our tradition, 
that we take them together.
what it means to honor God. Because we get back to striving and trying and trying to please him with behavior and religious activities. What if honoring God just meant that we would walk in the forgiveness that his son gave us on the cross? That we would understand life in abundance. That we would receive mercy and grace. we sing the chorus just one last time. Now, maybe God is doing something in your hearts. We have some people that are going to stay after and pray for you. Don't run away from yourself. Accept the forgiveness that Jesus gave on the cross. And once you accept that forgiveness, you can look deep and down, deep down inside of yourself and deal with it. And take steps to heal whole hearted freedom, 
healing. That's the work of the cross. I love you guys more than you know. I pray for you. I'll see you next week. Go in peace.